have dates on the wall. October 19th, 1997. March 10th, 2000. October 11th, 2007. September 16th, 2008. August 18th, 2015. And January 24th, 2020. Do you know what these dates have in common? These are dates which impacted people greatly. These are the dates of significant crashes in the stock market. Who knew that? Anybody know that? There you go. That's good to know. Well, you're in that business. You should know that, Rusty. The months before these dates, people thought they were doing well, saving for college, saving for retirement, saving for their kids' inheritance, saving for long-term care, saving for a down payment on a house or an expansion in their business. And whether losing thousands or several million, the feeling across the board for investors was the same. I thought I was doing the right thing, they thought, saving, investing. And I thought doing the right thing would ensure positive outcomes. Instead, I sit here looking at statements with half the value of just a month ago. People have lots of emotions when days like these six crash dates hit. Confusion, anger, despair, lost hope. But a pivotal truth hits especially hard in moments like this. And the truth is this. I am not in control. Back in November, we thought about the truth that God is sovereign, that he is in control. And today, the pivotal truth we'll look at is similar, but shaded a bit differently. And the truth is that I'm not in control. You're not in control. Do you recall a moment or a season in your life when this truth was undeniable for you? Maybe an unexpected diagnosis, an unexpected rebellious streak from your, from your daughter, an unexpected breakup, an unexpected layoff. Something goes terribly wrong, and this is the tough part. I can't do a thing about it. It's completely out of my control, and I don't like dealing in realms completely out of my control. What I know intellectually but rarely see the need to admit is that hardly anything if anything at all, is in my control. And that's a truth I would rather choose to just set aside. Did you notice these two statements on the wall? The first statement is one people have attributed to God. He says, tell me your plans. And I thought I knew it. If you want to make me laugh, tell me your plans. Or the the line by Madeline Langle, she writes, someone has altered the script. My lines have changed. I thought I was writing the play. My suspicion is that so some of you may not want to admit it, you understand, and others in here figured this out a long time ago, and you've had a great life with less anxiety since that revelation. But sooner or later, each of us will be hit with the reality of this truth. I am not in control. And this is the pivotal truth I'd like you to think about this morning. Turn to John chapter 18 if you would. Uh, Here we can watch a guy named Pilate handle a very tense situation where he's going to learn this lesson. Pilate is known for one thing in history, the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. That was certainly not his life's ambition. He wanted to be known for more than that. Uh, A few years earlier, Caesar Augustus had appointed Pilate to be the governor of Samaria and Judea. Uh, That covers about three-fourths of modern-day Israel. His word was law And his job was simple. Number one, collect taxes. And number two, keep the peace. And as long as he did that, he could do whatever else he wanted. He was in charge. Pilate wanted things to go smoothly. 
so that later he may, given, may be given even more responsibility and more control. He was very good at collecting taxes, and he was pretty good at keeping the peace. However, one problem he had to deal with was the Jewish people. They had a mutual hatred for each other. On two or three different occasions, Pilate sent troops into the neighborhoods of Jewish people and, and slaughtered them only because they were Jewish. On another occasion, he sent troops into the temple to steal the funds that had been raised for the temple, and he used that money to build an aqueduct. He constantly took offense, offensive pagan symbols and paraded them around the Jewish neighborhoods just to be as obnoxious as possible. Pilate seemed to enjoy irritating the Jews. When the story begins in John 18, Jesus has been arrested by some Jewish leaders, taken to their high priest, and he was accused of claiming to be the son of God, being equal with God. And they decided he needed to be executed for making that kind of claim. One problem arose. Jewish leaders didn't have the authority to crucify anyone. The only way to have someone put to death was through Pilate. He had to give the nod for any crucifixion to happen. And that irritated the Jews. It made Pilate pretty happy. It reminded the Jews that Pilate was in control, that his word was law. And when it came down to making big decisions, they had come to Pilate like he is their parent and ask his permission. Here's where we'll pick up the story. Jesus has been up all night. Uh, the time is running out. You only have 12 hours to Passover. The Jewish leaders needed Pilate to cooperate quickly. So they head to Pilate's palace. They knock on the door and they say, we need to see Pilate. And the guard says, come on in. And they look at the guard and they say, we can't come in. If we come in, that would make us ceremonially unclean for the Passover. The implication is to come into your palace, Pilate, would contaminate us because you're contaminated. You're unclean. You're unholy. So Pilate's thinking, you want me to do you a favor, but you won't even give me the courtesy of coming into my, my home. Let's go to John 18, 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace Summon Jesus and ask him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Do you think I'm a Jew? Pilate replied, it was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born, and for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate asked, what is truth? Think about Pilate's question. What is truth? Who cares about truth? Truth, truth is irrelevant. What's relevant is power. What's relevant is authority. What's relevant is being able to do what you want when you want, however you want. Who cares about truth? Jesus, Pilate says, truth has nothing to do with this predicament that you're in. Verse 38. With this, Pilate went out against, uh, again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? See, every year at Passover, Pilate would bring out all these prisoners who'd been arrested. And he asked them, okay, which one of these prisoners do you want me to set free? And he kind of points to Jesus. He says, how about, how about the king of the Jews? In verse 39, they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas, we read, had taken part in a rebellion. Sometime earlier, Barabbas had raised up an army to go against Rome. And through this insurrection, a lot of Jews were killed. 
And through all of that, the Israelites turned against Barabbas. So Pilate's thinking, because of that baggage with Barabbas, why they'll want him on the loose again. Do you want the king of the Jews set free or Barabbas? And they said, give us Barabbas. So now suddenly Pilate, who's in control, who's in charge, who's been appointed by Caesar, whose words are law, suddenly things begin to slip out of his control. Pilate is feeling the pressure from the Jews. He's feeling the pressure from the crowds. He's feeling the pressure from the emperor to keep peace. Yet he knows there's something about this man that's unusual. He knows Jesus is definitely not guilty of anything that justifies execution. Suddenly the man who's in power and in control seems to be losing both. So Pilate makes a drastic decision. A decision that illustrates what's going on inside of him. In chapter 19 and verse 1, Pilate took Jesus and he had him flogged. You see, Pilate's trying to please the crowd and trying to get out of this situation. So he has an innocent man tortured thinking this will be enough. This will make the Jews happy. Verse 2, the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, O King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Pilate saying, after all Jesus has gone through, he never confessed to anything. He's not deserving of death. Pilate knew Jesus had experienced punishment that never failed to break down a man. Yet he took it, and he never confessed what he'd been accused of. Pilate knew he himself had done a terrible thing. He was convinced Jesus was an innocent man. Verse 5. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, Here's the man. As soon as the chief priests and the the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and you crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Why would he be afraid? Do you, know, do you know why he was afraid? Maybe he was afraid of the Jews. Maybe he was afraid because Jesus was an innocent man. Maybe he was afraid because word of this might get back to Caesar. Suddenly, the man who'd worked so hard to be in control saw that control slipping away, and he doesn't know what to do. He goes back inside the palace, and he brings Jesus back to question him. Most any other man would have said whatever he had to say to escape any more punishment, any more torture. But Jesus isn't like most other men. Pilate asked him a strange question. He asked him, where do you come from? And Jesus' response amazed him. Pilate had been through this routine uh, many times, the accusations, the torture, the threat of death, and he'd seen this so many times before. But Jesus was different. He said nothing, no excuses, no confession, and Pilate was amazed. So finally, he kind of loses it. And he was, he was losing total control of the situation. Verse 10, do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? Pilate is saying to Jesus, don't you see what's going on here? I have the power over your fate. I decide what happens to you. I'm in control of whether you live or die. That's, that's up to me. Do you wonder what this moment was like? Did, did absolute silence fill the, the palace following Pilate's declaration? 
did a long, empty silence space occur before Jesus spoke his powerful response to Pilate? Jesus cuts right to the core of Pilate's insecurity and his control issues, and he says this in verse 11. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Pilate, here's your pivotal moment. You're not in charge. My destiny is not in your hands. In fact, your destiny isn't in your hands either. And when this, tr- this truth penetrates my life and your life, we will change the way we respond to just about everything because there's a little pilot in all of us. We stand up in our tiny little corner of the world, our family, our business, our friends, and we take charge. We think we control outcomes. We think we can control our husband. We think we can control our wife. We think we can tr- control who our children become. But deep down... I believe most of us know better. I believe most of us know we're not the boss. But we keep fighting. We keep on fighting for control we're not sure we'll ever have. And the thought of losing control terrorizes us. And into the security, Jesus speaks, and he says to each of us, you would have no authority unless it has been given to you from above. You're not in control. Over the history of this planet, Men have done some obscene things in pursuit of control. I was reading a brief description of Albert Speer. Uh, He was Hitler's kind of celebrated architect, sort of his right-hand man. Speer wrote of his years at Hitler's side, and he dealt with some tough questions, like what, what drove him? What were his motivations? What blinded him to the realities of what was happening to the Jewish people? In part, it was Speer's lust for being near the control center. Listen to his words. I realized that the desire to retain the position of power I had achieved was unquestionably a major factor. Even though I was only shining in the reflected light of Hitler's power, and I don't think I ever deceived myself on that score, I found it, I still found it worth striving for. I wanted, as part of his following, to gather some of his popularity, his glory, his greatness around myself. I had been bribed and intoxicated by the desire to wield pure power, to assign people to this and to that, to say the final uh, word on important questions, to deal with expenditures in the billions. We humans will make some insane choices for the sake of control. If I could focus on just the men for a few moments, um, it's easier for me to relate to men, obviously, than women. But I wonder if it's true that most men live with the temptation to control. In so many ways, men have been encouraged to take charge. We're, we're intrigued by men who run bulldozers, pilot planes, pull levers that, that uh, make cranes hoist tons of steel into the air, jackhammer concrete into pebbles, pull the trigger on a howitzer. From early on, we boys played with Tonka trucks, pushing them around the floor, making engine sounds. We played with guns, sneaking from tree to tree, stalking the enemy. Those are symbols of control, an an exertion of influence, pushing dirt, clearing a path, calming a conflict with force. In later years, some of us measure our lives in terms of what we control through our work. The climb up the ladder may be a pursuit for symbols of success or an attempt to prove self-worth, or maybe it's a search for control, control of people control of events, control of money. And how much of a rush is it to just say the word and people jump? 
Early on is just a person or two, but then it may grow to a few dozen or a few hundred or perhaps an entire workforce. You may have the power to hire. You may have the power to fire, which tells the, word, the world you must be successful. I suspect some men who don't have much control in their work environment become frustrated about that. So they come home and they exercise control on the home front. For the rest of the family, it's like living with a little Hitler, bossing, threatening, commanding, yelling, barking orders, doling out punishment. We grasp for control wherever we can find it. Without being in control somewhere, what kind of a man am I? I'm certain there's an application for women, and I'll leave that up to you to figure out. I doubt if women struggle less with the temptation to be in control. It's just manifested differently. Back to the text. We read this next. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Now, why would he do that? You know, he knew Jesus had exposed to him truth, truth that he had no interest in before. But after meeting Jesus and being amazed in his presence, he realized that allowing this man to be crucified on his watch would be a conflict he'd never be able to reconcile in his own heart. Now he's caught between two kings, the king of Rome and the king bound before him. Which king does he submit to? The innocent king who just spoke truth to his heart or the king who put him in power, power which seems to be slipping away? And which king do you submit to when you're doing it, when you're doing everything you can to keep control? Verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Can you believe a group of Jewish chief priests, the spiritual leaders of Israel, actually said, we have no king but Caesar? We will say or do just about anything to get or retain control. Finally, we read, after wrestling through this horrible, uninvited conflict, finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. When we live our lives thinking we must be in control of all that goes on around us, when we live with the perspective that says, if I don't do this, he won't ever get it right. If I don't do that, she won't ever make the best decision. When somehow we confuse ourselves with the one who is in, actually in control, when we think having control is the only secure place, when we, live with, when we live from that vantage point, we open the door to incredible amounts of fear and anxiety. If you believe you're in control, you fear losing it. If you live fighting to get in control, you fear never getting it. When it comes down to decision-making, your thoughts will be clouded by your fear of losing something you never had to begin with. This perspective will wreak havoc with your relationships because nobody, nobody wants to be controlled. If your take is, I must get control, I must stay in control, I cannot lose control, you'll have an impossible time of loving people because you cannot control people and love them at the same time, none of us, none of us desires to be controlled. What we desire is to be unconditionally loved. And you can't control and love unconditionally at the same time. 
I read a funny story in a book by uh, John Ortberg that you might enjoy. He writes these words, and it came to pass, there went out a decree from me. I walk into work. Things are run my way. My projects have been completed. Tasks I've assigned have been carried out. What does it mean? It means I'm in charge. This is my little kingdom. I go into my kids' room. Beds are made just as I prescribed. Chores are done just as I commanded. What does it mean? It means I'm in charge. This is my little kingdom. I walk through the door at the end of the day. My slippers are laid out by the lazy boy. My iced tea is ready. My paper is waiting for me. Dinner is on the stove. What does this mean? It means I've walked into the wrong house. (laughs) I have a feeling we're in a climate where this control deal is a pretty significant issue for most all of us. So many things seem to be out of control. Our politicians can't seem to get along even over the most basic of decisions. We see violence erupting across the globe, wars, murders, abuse, rising prices, stagnant wages, higher interest rates. What little control some of us appeared to have or thought we had, it's, it's slipping. Some are seeing more than a little control on the edge of collapse. And you may feel you're losing control over your job, your income, uh, your expenses, your mortgage. This is a big deal. And you are probably with me on this. I'm leaning into this reality more all the time, and here it is. I never was in control to begin with. I think I've misunderstood the control I thought I had for grace. I was never in control. I've simply been blessed in a way I never deserved. There's an incredible freedom that comes in acknowledging that you're not in control. Freedom comes when you realize God has entrusted some authority to you for a short amount of time, maybe as a parent, maybe as an employer, perhaps as a boss. You are only a steward of the limited control God has given you, but you are not responsible for controlling outcomes. You're not responsible for the way people react and behave. You're simply responsible to be a good steward, a faithful steward of the limited authority God's given for you or given you for the limited amount of time that he's allotted. Great freedom comes when I realize it's not my job to control people's responses. I don't control their behavior. And some of you may need to hear this specifically this morning. Freedom comes to parents when you realize you may be great at loving your children unconditionally. You may be exceptional at training them to be selfless and self-disciplined and motivated. But listen, you're not responsible for the outcome. That responsibility is on God's plate. Children grow up to be adults, adults who make their own choices, and they live with the choices they make, sometimes good, sometimes bad. We can't live their lives for them. And by the way, God has plenty of wayward children of his own. Children who grow up into adults and who make their own choices. At the end of the day, I'm not responsible for the outcomes. That's God's business. I'm not in control of that. Check out Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3. He addresses this very specifically. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God 
who makes things grow. There's a lot of freedom in the principle Paul communicates. God gives the increase. That's not my job. God's in charge of the outcome. So I shouldn't see myself as being more successful if the increase is great, nor should I see myself as a failure if the increase is minute. Success or failure on my part is a function of my faithfulness to the task, not the outcome. I'm not in charge of outcomes. I'm only a steward of the limited amount of authority I've been given for a limited amount of time that God allots. It's very humbling to realize through all of this that God will use you and me to bring about his desired results in the world, in people, and in families. He will use us to bring about beautiful endings to stories, but not once does he lay on us the responsibility to control those outcomes. And here's the best news in this story to learn. Just because my hands are tied doesn't mean God's hands are tied. Just because I can't control outcomes doesn't mean he can't control outcomes. Too many times we respond as if our hands are free and God's hands are tied. We say, God, if I don't do this, then he won't do that. Or if I don't do something, what's going to happen? And we say that as if God has little or no power to impact a situation. In this encounter Jesus has with Pilate, it looks as if Jesus' hands are tied and Pilate's hands are free, when in reality just the opposite is true. Jesus is the free one, and Pilate's the one that's all tied up. Remember this line from from Jesus. You would have no power over me unless it were given to you from above. God is in control, and when we get to the point of trusting him with the details of our lives, we'll find peace. We'll have a lack of anxiety. We'll, We'll experience freedom from fear that is unlike anything we could ever imagine. To respond with an attitude of, if I don't, it won't, is to assume a position in the universe that we don't hold. Jesus said out loud to the man who seemed to hold Jesus' destiny in his hand, you are not in control. Will we live our lives with this perspective? If you're absolutely convinced that God is in control, what would you do in this circumstance that you're in? If I was absolutely confident that God is in control, how would I respond to this person? How would I parent? How would I conduct my business? How would I manage my finances? If I was dead sure God is in control. It tore Pilate up that Jesus stood before him half dead and with these accusations pointing at him. Yet Jesus had this amazing confidence that his destiny was in God's hands, not Pilate's. Pilate had never met anyone like this in his life. On that day, Jesus responded the way he did because he was absolutely convinced his... A few days following his resurrection, he got together with his disciples and he said these words, all authority has been given to me. He didn't say all authority has been given to you. All authority has been given to me, therefore live your life knowing, being confident that I'm in control. And that's the simple invitation this morning. Give this a try. Live this week as if God is in control, not you, and see how it goes. Let's stand together and sing.